Welcome to Bath and Body Parts. I'm Melanie. And I'm Cassie. We're here to help you relax and unwind. It's time for candles, bubbles, wine, and of course, a tale of true crime. So go on, soakers. Settle into the tub. Let your muscles relax and your heart race as we dive into Bath and Body Parts. Today's episode is a little bit different. First, I'm recording with Matthew. Hi, Yay. it's me. <laughs> so Matthew has re- he's guest hosted for us a couple of times in the past, but I guess if you are a new listener, Matthew is our audio engineer for the podcast. He is our editor. He does all of the behind the scenes work. He is our husband. He is also my husband. <laughs> and we've uh, we've been doing this project together from the beginning. So I'm yeah. really excited. I've always been here. And it's been, you know, we it's been easy because we've been able to do some research on this case together. So I've really enjoyed that. Yes, but we, we held off on some of our discussion. Yes, yes. Yes, for sure. And another reason that this episode is going to be a little bit different is because a lot of what we're going to talk about is the history going on with the people involved in this case. And I think a lot of times like we start by just getting into the case and we start with like the crime and we go backwards. But I think that this time we have to start in the past and move forward for us to understand kind of what exactly went down because... Up until doing the research for this podcast episode, I really did not have any knowledge on this case except for what I had seen in the movie. And I had only seen this movie one time before. And the movie does leave a lot of things out. It really does. So let's go ahead and get into it. Dave and Mark Schultz were born only 17 months apart, but pretty much acted like they were twin brothers their whole lives. Their parents divorced when Mark was three, And they were really aware, like, they did not want to bring up their kids in a toxic divorce situation. So they tried to be as amicable as they could be. And Mark said, you know, that they really did have a happy upbringing and they were close with both of their parents and their grandparents. And they were living in Palo Alto, California. Now, Dave was always one of the biggest kids in his class. And because of their age difference... Mark was one grade behind Dave, and he was actually like one of the younger and smaller kids in his class. So they were very different, even though they were so close in age. Dave was diagnosed with dyslexia at a very young age, and he was actually pretty uncoordinated. He had to even take remedial classes, which was frustrating for him because like even though he would mix up his letters, he was extremely intelligent. And I feel like that's pretty accurate for any kid, any person that has dyslexia. Like, it's frustrating right? because you can be so smart but not able to prove that by reading aloud or writing. They understand everything that's going on. It's just that when you look at the page, the words are mixed up. Exactly. So in third grade, a student was actually making fun of Dave for having to be in one of those remedial classes. And mind you, they're in third grade. Dave actually knocked this kid to the ground and slammed their head into the concrete. 
the student was knocked unconscious and had to be taken from the school in an ambulance because his skull was cracked. That is vicious. That is some intense strength there. Some major playground scuffling. Right. So, of course, this incident earned Dave Schultz a reputation for being like the toughest kid in school. And Mark recalls that whenever someone would pick on him for being, you know, smaller than everyone else, Dave would always be the protector. And he would always step in and Mark really didn't get bullied because Dave was always there. And I got all of this information from the book, Foxcatcher, The True Story of My Brother's Murder, John DuPont's Madness, and The Quest for Olympic Gold, which was written by Mark Schultz. So he goes a lot into their background and their childhood growing up. Now, their mom remarried before Mark was going to enter fourth grade. And she had actually gotten this really prestigious job as a costume designer for a Shakespeare festival in Ashland, Oregon. And so this was about six hours away from their home in Palo Alto. But they did. They moved with their mom. And Mark said that, like, he really didn't like living in Oregon, not because there was anything particularly bad about it. It just took him away from his dad and his grandparents. And, you know, when you're a kid, like, moving is hard. Oh, yeah. And when you're away from family like that. For sure. And their their mom and stepdad actually did have two more children who the brothers would always consider to be, like, their full-blood siblings, even though they were, you know, stepbrothers and sisters. They just considered them to be family. And ultimately, their mom and their stepdad would divorce. Mark said that he really did have a hard time adjusting to his new school. And he just felt like school was really boring to him. So he pretty much became like the class clown. And he would often watch comedians like on VHS and take their jokes and try to, you know, make his classmates laugh. Mark was also a very natural athlete from a young age. And Dave really was not because, again, he was very uncoordinated. And when Mark entered his sixth grade year, that was kind of the year that really solidified his athletic abilities. So he actually broke 25 school records in a bunch of different sports that the school had. And he was good at a lot of them. And he was really trying to figure out, like, which one do I really want to kind of make my thing. You know, like I'm good at all of these different sports, track, football. What do I actually want to do? When Dave was in seventh grade, he became interested in wrestling. He'd always been the biggest kid in class, but during this time, several of his peers had also bulked up and he really fell in love with it. Mark said he also loved that Dave enjoyed wrestling because it did solidify his reputation of being tough which made kids leave Mark alone and not bully him. Right, because now we're talking like junior high, right? Like, Yeah. And so, you know, Dave always being big, now he's he's not the biggest necessarily anymore because in junior high, kids are having growth spurts, but he's still like known as being really strong. He's not just big, he's also on the wrestling team. Yes. So he knows how to fight. Wrestling also would help Dave discover that he was actually ambidextrous. And this would help him in matches because he would be able to trick his opponents, favoring one side or looking like he was favoring one side and then being just as good at the other. In eighth grade, Dave placed fourth in the whole state for wrestling. He competed internationally in ninth grade, placing second. Mark said that even though Dave was super successful in wrestling, 
He didn't make a big deal out of it, and he didn't let it affect his ego. Mark said that he had a steady demeanor. And I feel like several people in the Foxcatcher documentary also talk about how Dave just really was a solid, steady dude. He did not have, like, emotional outbursts. He did not have a big ego. And it seems like he just had that even from the time that he was really young. Mark recalls that he did not enter wrestling for any other reason than that he needed a P.E. credit in seventh grade. He was able to win a lot of the wrestling matches, but he said that when he won, it didn't leave him with great feelings. He just dreaded having the next match, which is kind of a sad way to look at things. It really is, but I, I think Especially that it, in competitive sport. I think it speaks to the fact that, like, he didn't always set out to be this winning athlete, right? Like, yeah, it kind of It was shows, more just a hobby. Yes. And an, it was an obligation for him. And right. he was just... He had more obligations after the fact, as opposed to Dave's passion for it. Right. Mark was going to possibly try out for the school wrestling team, but during that school year, he and Dave moved back to Palo Alto to live with their dad. Mark said that Oregon had never felt like home. During his eighth grade year in Palo Alto, Mark made the wrestling team. The coach was also the swim coach, and Mark said that it was clear swim was his priority. The practices were disorganized, and they didn't learn a lot of techniques. When Mark went to ninth grade, he met Dave's wrestling coach, Ed Hart. Ed also coached gymnastics and taught Mark how to do a backflip. This is when Mark discovered his passion for gymnastics. He started practicing twice a day and began training under the Stanford gymnastic coach, Sadeo Hamada. Mark would go on to win the Northern California overall championship for ages 15 to 16. So again, he's just found this passion for gymnastics. And, and he's he, already winning. He has that natural athletic ability, so he is an immediate success. He practiced at two gyms, one on the Stanford campus. Dave would practice wrestling there as well, and they would do their practices and then often hang out with others from the wrestling side since most of the gymnasts didn't hang around after their practice was done. Mark said that although he was good at gymnastics, he was not gaining confidence. He said he knew that the reason was that he was jealous of his brother. Dave had been doing extremely well in wrestling and had several college recruiters fighting for him to come wrestle for them. Mark didn't have anything like that. Their dad thought that gymnastics would be Mark's ticket to college, but instead... Mark left the sport. So we're starting to see like, and these are in Mark's own words, that part of what caused him to have less than what he wanted was because he was jealous of Dave, right? Jealousy like, is kind of a through line in this whole story. Definitely, definitely. When Mark turned 15, he actually went back to Ashland to live with his mom and his step-siblings he had started using marijuana back in Palo Alto and his dad found out. So his dad told him like, you can't be doing that here. You got to go live with your mom. And, you know, he also started hanging out with kids there that were making less than great choices, like doing drugs and even cashing fake checks. Just kind of like an overall not good crowd. Kids cashing fake checks is another level of right. childhood disobedience. <laughs> right. So as an outlet for how he was feeling on himself, you know, he had this low self-esteem. He actually started going to a mixed martial arts studio. 
And at the time, Bruce Lee was very popular and a lot of people were starting to attend these types of studios and it was very much in. But he only lasted about two weeks. He said that he really wanted to fight Dave and he provoked several fights. And while Dave was totally beating him, he realized that he needed to become a better wrestler. So he signed up for the school's wrestling team even though that wasn't his passion. He just knew that if he was ever going to beat Dave, he needed to get better at wrestling. Just some sibling rivalry. Uh Uh-huh. Now, the wrestling team at the school was led by a coach named Tim Brown. The team was small and only consisted of 10 other young men. And Mark began in the 130-pound weight class. Now, in wrestling, coaches at the school could only play one person per weight class in a match. So this meant that sometimes coaches would have to come up with who was going to fight in each weight class and encourage that student to either gain weight or lose weight. And that's common in a lot of different sports. Yes. So Mark quickly became familiar with cutting weight, which is where a participant would have to very quickly lose weight to fit into one of the classes. And this can be achieved in several ways. You can cut back on what you eat, you cannot eat at all, or you can also binge and purge. And Mark knows, he says in the book, like he knows that this is unhealthy, but it's very normalized in the wrestling world and in several other sports. But we're not trying to condone that at all. No. It is bad. It is not good. It is not good. It is common, but it is unhealthy and psychologically damaging. And there's a lot wrong with it. Mark also learned some moves from Dave and one of their mutual friends. And these moves would actually become... They would make it really hard for Mark's opponents to pin him down. So he was starting to get better and starting to get these advantages as he was learning from his brother. He was getting better at wrestling individually, but his average wins were actually not strong enough to bring up the team scores. And Mark talked about how, you know, he's a 16-year-old boy, right? And he's not really concerned about doing really well for the team. He's more concerned about how he's doing individually. So he says, like, he didn't really care if he didn't help the team, he was just in it to win it for himself. Right. And wrestling is not a team sport anyway. So if, you, if you're if you not team-oriented as a person, right. you're not going to care about the average score of your club or whatever. And around this time, Mark also started skipping classes. And he even got into a fight that caused him to break his hand. And he said that the only thing he learned from this fight was not to punch anyone in the back of the head because it's too hard back there. (laughs) That's solid advice. It is. It is. But I also feel like that kind of gives you even more insight into the type of teenager that Mark really was. His takeaway from this fight was, (laughs) this is the wrong place to punch someone. Right. Dave's senior year of high school... He produced the best stats of any U.S. high school student wrestler ever. And of course, college recruiters were lining up trying to convince him to wrestle for them. At the middle of Mark's junior year, he moved back to Palo Alto, but it was too late to try out for the wrestling team at school. Since he was not on the school team, Mark would compete in freestyle competitions on the weekends. So almost like a fight club? Yeah, almost like not a fight club, but just like a studio place where like, 
You know, if you take karate and you're like competing in the place where you attend class, it's like that type of thing. Kind of like a pickup basketball game. Yes, yes. Still following all the rules. Following all the rules, everything, you know, everything that he could do on his team, he just had transferred in the middle of his year, so he couldn't get onto the team. He ended up hitting a growth spurt during this time and went up to 145 pounds, which junior year of high school... I think I was probably a hundred pounds. <laughs> well, you you were very thin. I was sure. not a wrestler. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> Mark also copied something that Dave had done for years. He started keeping a notebook, kind of like a journal, full of moves that either worked or didn't work, and coming up with new techniques and things that he had observed other wrestlers doing. So uh, kind of like a field manual. Mm-hmm. Mark said that Dave had turned wrestling into not only a sport, but also an academic pursuit. So he was going to do the same. I find that really interesting. Mm-hmm, for sure. By the time Mark's senior year started, he had gained even more weight and was now 157 pounds. I don't. I think I hit 157 pounds like five years ago. I'm not going to talk about when I hit 157 pounds. <laughs> we don't talk about that. He was super important in the school winning the California State Championship in 1978. And he said that even with international matches in the future, this win made him actually think that maybe God was real. This was the match that had the most influence on his life. And like, I never was part of any team that like won a state championship type of thing. But I imagine that you're a high school student and you're like, this is it. This is the pinnacle of what I'm searching for. This is this like, will be the glory days that you talk about when you're old. Right, right. Is your, you know, golden moment right. when you are young and the world is yours. And like I said, I know that this episode is different. Like we have not gotten into any crime yet. We have not gotten into why we are recording this episode for Bath and Body Parts and not just like a sports podcast. But I am going to switch gears now and talk about someone who is very integral to this case. And his name is John DuPont. John Eluthier DuPont grew up in a 40-room mansion on 800 acres in Pennsylvania. His family actually had ties all the way back to Thomas Jefferson. And the way that they made their money now was through the DuPont Chemical Company. And this family is often listed alongside Rockefeller and Vanderbilt and very much that old money New England vibe. The Dow and the NASDAQ. <laughs> right. So John was born in 1938, essentially with a silver spoon in his mouth. His family owned Foxcatcher Stable, where they owned Thoroughbreds. And John's father also loved fox catching. His parents separated, and his father would go on to remarry, but his mother would never remarry, and she lived in the family mansion for the rest of her life. John was shy and also had a stutter, and he attended prestigious schools where people were very much divided on him. If you asked some of them, they would say that he was definitely the most likely to succeed. And others would say he was the laziest person in their class. I love that. So very much a divisive person. He swam and wrestled at school. And he went to college at the University of Miami and was on their swim team. 
He dreamed of swimming in the Olympics and his financial situation really did enable him to train with the best people ever. So he bought a second home in Atherton, California, which coincidentally was only five miles away from the Schultz family home in Palo Alto. And he swam for the Santa Clara Swim Club. They had trained many Olympic swimmers. But here's the thing. John was just a good swimmer. He wasn't exceptional in any way. It was clear that he was really never going to qualify to swim in the Olympics. So in 1963, he decided to try pentathlon, which has five different sports, cross-country running, fencing, freestyle swimming, pistol shooting, and show jumping. Now, this made sense for John because not many people could afford to train in five different disciplines and get five different coaches. But he did have the money. And it really does make sense. Like a pentathlon seems to me kind of like a rich person sport, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Multidisciplinary stuff. Yes. So on his mom's property, he actually paid to have a pistol range and an Olympic-sized pool installed. But unfortunately, he did not have the natural ability despite all of his trainings. And he did go to the Olympic qualifiers for the 1968 Olympics, but he actually placed second to last. John contributed financially to the pentathlon in the Olympic Games. And in the 1976 Games, he was given a manager spot, which enabled him to be at the Olympics and even wear the sweatsuit that the team comes out in and wears on the sidelines. John also faced the realization that he was getting too old to ever be an Olympian. So he decided that instead he was going to recruit athletes to Team Foxcatcher, where he wanted to train swimmers, triathletes, and pentathletes. And these training grounds were commonly known as the farm. So people would say like, oh yeah, I'm training up at Foxcatcher Farm. I'm going to the farm. That became very commonplace. And during this time, John also made friends with the Newtown Square Police. He actually allowed them to use his indoor and outdoor shooting ranges to train. And he himself was an excellent marksman and was even able to train some of the police recruits. So maybe he should have gone out for Olympic sharpshooting. Well, sharpshooting was part of the pentathlon at the time. So I don't know if it was like its own sport, but... He just wasn't good enough at the rest of it. He just wasn't good enough at the rest of it. Getting back to Mark and Dave, the Schultz brothers, winning the state championship had opened some doors for Mark. He'd been operating under the assumption that after high school, he would just join the military like a lot of people did. Sure. But now several schools wanted him to come wrestle for them. Since he hadn't been consistent, he didn't have as many colleges trying to get him as Dave did, though. He ended up deciding on UCLA. He also had friends who were attending there, and he really liked the coaches. Oklahoma State had also really wanted him, and he did consider it, but OSU was a wrestling powerhouse, so Mark thought that it was probably unwise for him to go, only having two successful, consistent years under his belt. UCLA's head wrestling coach was Dave Auble. He had placed fourth in the 1964 Olympics. He was a tough coach, and Mark said he hoped some of his toughness would rub off on him. Dave had been attending OSU, but he decided to transfer to UCLA as well, even though it would mean he had to sit out of one season due to transfer rules. So that summer, Dave and Mark worked out all the time. Mark said that Dave made it a nightmarish three months. Like they were just, all they did 
was wrestle. There was no no going to the beach, no exploring no social life, no social life. Three months straight of just wrestling. Wow. Mark was required to take a philosophy class his freshman year at UCLA, and he liked it so much. He actually considered choosing it as his major. Which is super interesting to me because if you read the book, if you watch anything that involves Mark, philosophy is probably like the last thing I would ever imagine for him to major in. I would not be thinking this is a philosophy major. Definitely not. But you know, but you I've, know. You I've know. taken some philosophy courses and I really enjoyed them. Uh I would not expect to find a member of the wrestling team in any of those courses. Right. So that's an interesting thing about his personality. During his freshman year, Mark had been invited to a party. So he arrived and quickly got bored. It was the typical loud college party with a lot of drinking. He left the building with a few girls, but he saw that there were some cops coming. They had received several complaints about the party. Mark decided he wanted to go back upstairs to warn them about the cops before they got there. But he ended up getting into a physical fight with the police, and he used some of his wrestling moves on them. Gosh. He managed to escape, but they did catch up with him, and he was taken to jail. Mark used his one phone call to call Coach Obel, and his response was half laughing, quote, good job, I knew you had it in you. <laughs> like, dang. That okay. is not the response I would expect your coach no. <laughs> to have no. when getting a call from jail that I, I used wrestling. Cops. I used my wrestling techniques on the cops. <laughs> I mean, that's hilarious. And now I want to be Coach Abel's friend. Right. Right. Abel said that he would call Mark's dad for him. The following day, Mark was charged with assault and battery on two cops. His dad put up the $5,000 bail. Abel said he would connect Mark with a lawyer. One of the girls that had been with Mark told the DA that Mark had only broken the cop's hold on him. Like he wasn't trying to use excessive force. He was literally just trying to get out of their hold. He wasn't suplexing them. He was just trying to break the hold. And the charges were dropped. His father did have to pay $1,000 to a lawyer. And Mark worked to pay him back for that. Now, interestingly, the Schultz brothers both transferred to college at Oklahoma University, which was not as prestigious as OSU for their wrestling program, but it was still good. OU is located in Norman, Oklahoma. It's not far from where we are. They did well in school, but neither one of them put a lot of effort in their academics. They were really just going to school for wrestling. Both Dave and Mark advanced to the NCAA tournament, and they both became national champions along with one of their teammates, Andre. Two weeks after this win, Mark was asked to represent the U.S. at the World Cup in Toledo, Ohio. And they ended up actually beating the Russians, which was a huge feat. And this actually started gaining a lot of respect from other people. And Dave and Mark started getting more well-known in the wrestling community, even outside of the college arena. Yeah, because this was during the Cold War. So the Russians were... Enemy number Russian, one. Russian, <laughs> U.S. There was a lot of competition there. Yes. Anytime that they could show one another up, they did try. And in 1982, Dave got married to Nancy. And this, of course, changed the bond between the brothers because also Mark was still in college. It was his senior year and Dave was now graduated and married. So they were at different stages of life and they started to grow a bit apart. 
They both ended up graduating with degrees in exercise science, and they didn't really have any opportunities to stay in Oklahoma and coach there. Mark had actually fallen out with the head coach who remarked that he and his brother were not team players. So they really did not have any reason to stay in Oklahoma. But they both did receive an offer to go coach at Stanford. So they each rented rooms in their dad's house. And Mark felt like everyone viewed him as just Dave's less successful younger brother. And again, we talk about like that sibling rivalry, that jealousy. We're starting to see that even in their adulthood and even at this stage in their life. If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to bonus content and extra mini true crime cases, plus get access to our exclusive Bath and Body Parts bath bombs, we'd love to have you join our Patreon as a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber. Visit patreon.com slash bath and body parts to learn more. Both brothers qualified for the 1984 U.S. Olympic team. But three months before the Games, the Soviet Union and 13 other Eastern Bloc countries announced that they were boycotting the Games that were going to take place in Los Angeles. And they cited concerns for their security as the reason that they were not going to attend. Now, the Olympic Village where athletes usually stay, you know, it's com- it's like comprised of these buildings that are, you know, pretty basic, but they just house everybody while they're there. All use buildings. Yes. And so because it was happening in Los Angeles, they were using campus college housing as the Olympic Village. So they were using the campuses of UCLA, USC, and the University of California, Santa Barbara. And the wrestlers were assigned to housing at USC. During these Olympic Games, both brothers received gold medals They were the first brothers in U.S. history to do this for wrestling. They And like when you win a gold medal in the Olympics, you kind of go on a tour. A press tour. (laughs) A press tour, essentially. And like you hit up a couple of cities and they were actually able to meet President and Nancy Reagan. Because they're, you know, at that point, you're kind of an ambassador for your country. Yes. And there was actually like a really cute interaction that the Schultz brothers had with the Reagans where... Dave and Mark told um, President Reagan, like, I'm going to vote for you next time. And Nancy was like, say it louder so people can hear. In 1985, they competed together internationally in Hungary. Now, the Soviet Union competed and Mark actually won first place and Dave won second place. So they were still doing well, even though they were competing now with the Soviet Union. But after this win in Hungary, Mark was fired from coaching at Stanford. But Dave wasn't fired and he stayed on, which caused further tension in their relationship because they had been coaching together, but they still lived together. They're at all their living dad's together. <laughs> there were rent, I mean, they were renting out rooms in their dad's house. It wasn't like they were freeloading, but like, I just imagine that would be very tense. So Mark was in, you know, his kind of apartment at his dad's house when he received a call from a man who identified himself as the chief surgeon at Stanford University Medical Center. And this man called and said that he was vouching for a man named John DuPont who would be calling him soon. That afternoon, DuPont called Mark and asked him to come be an assistant coach at a wrestling program that he was starting near Philadelphia. He asked Mark, how much would it take to get you here? And Mark replied, $24,000. Like he just said, whatever number he could think of. 
he said, you know, I probably could have asked for 300000 and it would not have been a problem. But salary-wise, at the time, $24,000 was a lot. That was a lot of money back then. Now, it came out later on that DuPont had actually called Dave first. But Dave had just been given a raise at Stanford. So he declined the proposition. But he gave John Mark's name instead. I bet Mark would hate to know that. Right. I'm sure when that came out... Knowing that he was the second choice. (laughs) I'm sure when that came out, it would cause further tension. Mark and John talked a few times on the phone. And in Mark's words, it seemed like John really didn't know much about starting the program. But Mark knew that it was very rare for someone with money to influence wrestling. Mark went to meet him in person, and he was taken aback by John's appearance. Mark had expected someone of money to look more put together. But this man wore shorts and a t-shirt. He looked older, hadn't put a lot of thought into his appearance, obviously. Mark said he appeared to be drunk and or stoned, and he slurred his words. Quote, he seemed harmless, but seriously, seriously off. Mark said he should have trusted his gut and walked away, but he didn't. Once he was able to visit Villanova and saw where John lived, He felt like he made a good choice because with that sort of financial backing, he felt that he could have a national winning team within five years. When Mark told Dave he would be leaving, Dave decided he was also going to leave to work as a coach at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. John called Mark to come see him at his mansion. And when he arrived, several men were there and John was drunk. And he started crawling on his hands and knees and tried to wrestle Mark, who he called pal. I'm sorry, but if I'm walking into someone's mansion and I walk in and they start crawling to me on hands and knees, like I'm out. I didn't even say Fidelio to get into this mansion. Like, right. This is some weird stuff. This is some eyes wide shut weirdness. Very much. John would visit Mark at Villanova, once coming in under the influence and just saying, quote, I am craving blueberries. If I have a basket of blueberries right now, I would eat it all up. Yum, yum, yum. You understand what I'm saying? God. (laughs) He would often ask, do you understand? After he spoke. Like, just imagine your boss comes in and is like, if I had a basket of blueberries right now, nom, 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 nom. Yum, yum, yum. God. No, thank you. John put Mark in charge of recruiting. So far, they hadn't been able to recruit anyone of note. John would fly out high school hopefuls on private planes, feed them lobster dinners, and even offer them full-ride scholarships to Villanova. And Mark wasn't sure how he was going to be able to do all that. Right, like it's not like he's saying, oh yeah, like I'll I'll just pay for you to come live at Foxcatcher. He's saying like, I'll get you a full-ride scholarship to Villanova. I'm not sure that he could actually do that though. Mark got Dan Shade to come coach with him. He had known him from before in Oklahoma. And Dan Chade is interviewed in the Foxcatcher documentary. And I like him. I thought he was a really nice guy. I felt like most of the people in the documentary were very pleasant compared to John. Definitely. Dave came and joined Foxcatcher in 1986. Mark said he didn't have an opportunity to warn his brother about any of John's shenanigans. But John paid Dave very well. During Mark's second year of working at Foxcatcher, he asked for a raise and was denied by John. Although several good wrestlers had joined the team, it still seemed like the whole setup wasn't well thought out. There wasn't a set chain of command, 
There wasn't a training schedule. It was just kind of thrown together, right? Like he's getting Mark to recruit these wrestlers with no set plan. And Mark's like, am I supposed to come up with a whole training program for everyone? Like John is acting like he is the wrestling guru. Right. But also just expecting the people he pays to show up right. he's to like, create no, he's the whole program. guiding them. Like. Yeah. They are going to also come up with all of the program. Mark held a party and some underage wrestlers were there. Alcohol was served and it was a regular style college party. But when John found out about it, he told Mark, I am going to ruin your career. And on Christmas Day, 1987, John called Mark and told him he was fired. And Mark talks about that in the book. And he says, like, it's Christmas Day. He's with his family. They're doing, like, traditional Christmas stuff. And he gets that call. That was definitely planned on John's part to interrupt the holiday celebration for sure. Maximum drama. During that holiday break, John also took the wrestlers on an unscheduled trip to Puerto Rico. They only had one wrestling match, so it technically didn't break any rules. But, like, that was an unscheduled trip, so it wasn't on the books for USA Wrestling Team, and that could have gotten them in really big trouble if they had competed more than once. Right. In 1987, John wrote a book called Off the Mat, Building Winners in Life. Mark heard him dictating the book on a tape recorder, and he was drunk most of the time. John asked Mark to write the foreword of the book, and he did. John also held a banquet where he essentially presented himself with an award and gave a speech in front of the Foxcatcher team and Villanova reps. John changed his mind and allowed Mark to stay, but he told him he would have to move on property if he was going to continue working for him. So Mark moved into one of the homes. And on the property, there were several like full-size homes. We're not talking just like a room. We're talking nice homes. This was essentially a small city. Right. Because there it was 800 acres. Like It was bigger than a neighborhood. Yes. And there were plenty of houses. And so during the research for this episode, Matthew and I together watched this Netflix documentary called Team Foxcatcher. And there's so much in that documentary that I think really gives us information into what was happening at the time. And it also really shows who Mark was, who Dave was, and who John was in a very unfiltered way. And one of the quotes that really stood out to me is something that John says toward the beginning of the documentary. He says, quote, My goal is to teach young people to not only become champions in sport, but to become champions in life. And I feel like that kind of gets repeated, that sentiment, quite a bit. That's kind of his mantra. And Ray Wilson, who was the groundskeeper of Foxcatcher, reveals that he didn't really remember how John became as obsessed with wrestling as he did. Because for a long time, the focus had really been on swimming and triathlon. But John's mom was totally against wrestling as a sport. His entire family had viewed wrestling as a sport for lower class people. And so some speculated that John 
kind of dove head into the world of wrestling as an act of rebellion against his mother. Yeah, it might be the most normal thing about him. Right, <laughs> right. Like, I want to be rebellious and like something that you His don't. old money family yes. didn't respect poor people or their sports. Now, Dave Schultz was really known as, like, the wrestler. He was the person that you tried to emulate if you were taking up the sport. And his wife, Nancy, really supported him in all of his endeavors. She would actually travel with him worldwide. And they they really did seem like they had a good relationship. Dave was a very successful wrestler because he would lull his opponents into a false sense of security because off the mat, he was very different than he was on the mat. He walked differently. He was kind of almost like described as a hippie, you know? And so you, when you see someone who's very like, oh yeah, go with the flow, you don't really think that they're going to be like a beast, but he was a beast. Yeah, it was, it was almost like... Uh, drunken boxing style fight. Uh-huh. Uh, but but more of a, you know, he would walk around kind of limp wrist. Right. Not marching around, stomping around. Not but at his full height either. Very light on his feet. Mm-hmm. Right before when he would handshake his opponent. Kind of, kind of, you know, a little floaty. The, the yeah. opposite of yeah. sumo, essentially. Dave liked Russian culture a lot and he actually learned some of the language and would often go and visit Russia. He wanted to learn more about the language and everything because he wanted to know what the Russian coaches were saying to their players because Russian wrestlers were world dominant and Russian wrestlers do not age out the way that American wrestlers do. So even if you are an Olympic gold meddling wrestler in the United States, you only have until you're like in your mid thirties, if you're lucky. And then you have to go like do a job, like a regular job. But in Russia, it's almost like you're a career wrestler. So you can, you can be older and they're still going to pay for you to do it. So John started inviting athletes to come live on the farm kind of one at a time. And he would invite them to live in one of the houses on property, and he was providing a salary for them. And a few of the athletes interviewed in the documentary commented on how living at the Foxcatcher property was so different from what they were used to. It was, you know, this, again, 800-acre farm, right? And immense wealth, and everything was provided for them so that they could have a good experience because the philosophy was that John was trying to eliminate all of the stresses that would hinder an athlete from doing their best. So I'm going to pay for everything for you. You're not going to have to worry about money. You're not going to have to worry about your family because you can move them up here with you. You're just going to focus on the sport, which if you have good intentions, sounds great, (laughs) right? That's a solid approach. And John did tell the other athletes that he was going to bring in the best of the best and he was going to get Dave Schultz from California and move him up to Foxcatcher. Okay, Soakers, that's where we'll leave the story for now. Next time, we'll learn more about Mark and Dave Schultz and how their benefactor, John DuPont's descent into paranoia would ultimately lead to a fatal tragedy. If you're a patron, you can listen to part two right away. Otherwise, tune in next week for the rest of the tale. Until then, self-care for the best, prepare for the worst, but most importantly, take care of yourself. We'll catch you next time on Bath and Body Parts. Bye. Bye.
Body Parts merch, snag your shirts, mugs, fanny packs, towels, and more at bathandbodypartspodcast.com slash merch. If you'd like to support the show and get access to VIP perks like ad-free content, early access to episodes, and extra episodes each month, along with special segments and exclusive merch, including the Bath and Body Parts Bath Bomb, you can become a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber on our Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash bathandbodyparts to get started.